So this last uh, Monday was the presidential debates. Who watched the presidential debates? Okay. Sure, you can get excited about that. <laughs> so this, uh, these debates, there was something historic <laughs> about these debates. Um, it was the first time in the history of a presidential debate that God was never mentioned. In the, f- in, in the entire discussion, it was the first time that there was not a discussion of God or uh, or how the God of the Bible enforces or imposes uh, morality on a people. And I say that to s- kind of set up where we're at in this series and why we're preaching through this series. We're preaching through the book of Daniel, and we're going to be going through First Peter because the reality of the fact that we are resident aliens is becoming clearer and clearer to us. Resident aliens means that we live here, we are citizens of this country, most of us, and yet our true citizenship, our true home is in heaven. We're exiles here, we're aliens here, we're strangers here. And there's probably no better place in all of the Bible to look at this topic and how then are we supposed to live than the book of Daniel. Because the book of Daniel is all about a group of people, uh, Israelites specifically, that have been taken from their home, their country has been conquered by the Babylonians, and they've been taken from Jerusalem, and they are now living in Babylon. And the story is really about four main characters, Daniel and his four friends, excuse me, his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or as Zach Seymour likes to say, Abednego. And this morning, we're in chapter 3, and in chapter 3, the story is really about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And what we're going to see is we're going to see how this this king, this dictator, Nebuchadnezzar, has has set up this uh, image of sorts that's to be worshipped. And these themes of religious tolerance will come into play this morning, as we as Christians living in 2016 think about what it means, what it means to be a Christian living in a country that is becoming increasingly post-Christian. And what I mean by that, that's a sociological term that means that the majority of people no longer identify with the God of the Bible. And it also means that the majority of people no longer look to the Bible for the place of their moral code of what's right and wrong. So that's what it means to live in an increasingly post-Christian society. So if you have your Bibles, I'm going to read to us this entire text. This is Daniel chapter 3, verses 1 to 30. It's a very interesting story. And as, as you're just turning there, I'm just going just to reveal a couple things to you to listen for. Uh, there's a phrase that's going to occur nine different times. It's set up. You're going to hear this phrase nine different times, set up. Just think about that as you're Understanding the meaning of this text. Verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set, up, he set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces that come to the dedication of the image that the king, Nebuchadnezzar, had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You 
are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every other kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at that certain time, Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you've appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? It's almost comical, isn't it? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into the burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because of the king's order was urgent and the furnace was overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished, and he rose up in haste. He declared to the counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? And they answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men, unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace, and he declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out here, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had no power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command, and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree 
Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their house laid in ruins, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We are grateful, God, that you've given it to us. Lord, we ask for your help this morning as we look at what it is to be resident aliens, God, in the midst of a um, culture that is against you, that hates you, Lord. We long to be a faithful presence here. We pray that uh, we would be built up through the preaching of your word, God. We pray that we would be enamored with the beauty and glory of Jesus Christ. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So kind of a wild story. Um, It's almost satirical. It's almost ironic in the way that it's written, the repetition where it says the satraps, the prefects, the governors, again and again and again and again. Uh, and that's intentional. It's intentional. The author is setting up for you this scene that's, that's almost fantastical. It's almost, it's almost comical in nature, the way that, that all these people just follow and do whatever Nebuchadnezzar says. But we're going to look at a few things. The first thing I want to look at is this notion of religious tolerance. So question, this image that King Nebuchadnezzar sets up for himself comes on the heels of chapter 2. And if you remember in chapter 2, what had happened was Nebuchadnezzar had a dream of this image. He had a dream of an image, and in it represented four different kingdoms of the earth that would come after Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom, going all the way to the Roman Empire. And then we turn the page, and we see that Nebuchadnezzar has made a golden image himself. I think what's striking is that the image that he has a dream of, it's only a golden head. It's only a golden bust. But the image that he makes of himself, or for himself rather, the text doesn't tell us if it's of himself or it's of a deity, but this image that he makes, at least, is all gold. And it seems as if there's this fish shaking of sorts. There's this pride in Nebuchadnezzar that's saying, no, my kingdom will last forever. My kingdom is a kingdom of gold. It's almost bucking against the vision that he just had. But in setting up this vision, in setting up this image, was Nebuchadnezzar saying that everyone had to exclusively worship the Babylonian gods. Look at verse 14. In accusing uh, the, four, the three men, he says, you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up. Now that word or could be nor. You do not serve my gods nor the golden images that I have set up. In a sense, what Nebuchadnezzar is saying is he's looking for some kind of religious pluralism. Okay? He's not saying that they had to exclusively worship the gods of Babylon. He was setting up a system of religious pluralism and tolerance. He knew, he knew that all these people where he was in, in, in his country were coming with their own gods, and he was fine with them worshiping them, just not exclusively. Nebuchadnezzar is saying that the way you Israelites can prove that you're not a bigot is by coming out and worshiping this image that I set up. Sure, you can believe in your God as well, okay? But you're not going to come out and say that your God is superior to these other gods. He's offering some kind of religious pluralism to him. I think it's also interesting that the word that's used here is image because everything is made to image something. I, I mentioned this a bit last week and I can't go into it completely, but just quickly... In Genesis 1.27, we see that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. 
And then directly after that, God tells these image bearers what they ought to do. He says, and God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. So God creates mankind in his image, and then he gives them what's called the cultural creation mandate. He says, fill the earth, multiply, have babies, and then rule over it, subdue it, okay? And we oftentimes talk about what is it that makes us in the image of God? And we use this word communicable and incommunicable attributes when we talk about systematic theology. And we're trying to figure out which of God's attributes has he given to us and which of them has he retained for himself. And then further, which of God's attributes has he given just to mankind and not to the rest of creation? So in what sense are we unique from all of creation? In what sense are we as image bearers? And I think it's largely related to the cultural and creation mandate that we have the ability to subdue the earth. Okay? It would, giraffes didn't make skyscrapers. I mean, it's human ingenuity. It's human ingenuity that creates and has progress and deals with technology and so on. Everything was made to image something, and we're made to image God. So what's the point of Nebuchadnezzar's image? What's its purpose? Well, I just said a second ago, first its purpose has to do with the previous chapter, has to do with his dream. But second, the purpose of Nebuchadnezzar's image is to be the glue of a multicultural empire. It's to be the glue of a multicultural empire. Everyone can have their own God, but no one can say that their God is the exclusive God. It's the glue to a multicultural empire. The idea is that the only way to have peace is to acknowledge that every other God is equally as valid. The only way to have peace is to acknowledge that every other God is equally as valid. And man, that sure sounds like a modern idea. The whole notion of coexist says that every religion, every God is equally valid. And the only way to peace and flourishing in in that kind of religious pluralistic society is to say that they're all equal. No one has the right to say one of the other gods is superior to the other. And on some level, I think at least I can be a little sympathetic to that kind of thinking. Because it's a line of thinking that goes like this, that it could be dangerous for one group of people to think that their religious beliefs are superior to another. Because they will then force their ideals and ideology on everyone else, and it won't lead to civic peace. And an extreme example of this, of course, is the religious ideology of ISIS. These are people that are motivated to hurt, kill, and destroy based on a radical view of Islam. So you can understand on some level, you can understand on some level at least the motivation for there to be a religiously plural society. The notion of coexist makes sense on some level. And that probably exists, we have different views probably in this room. We have a majority of us that probably believe that Jesus Christ is the way, the only way, the truth and the life to the Father. And there are some in this room that probably would accept some kind of religious pluralism. But let me just follow that line of thinking for just a moment. If we mean, or if you mean, that Christians can't convert other people. And that's what you mean by living in a pluralistic, coexisting society. Then just think about that for a second. If you mean that Christians shouldn't try to convert other people, think about that for a second. 
Think about what Nebuchadnezzar was doing. He was telling people that they can worship their own gods as long as it doesn't impose on other people. Now, that is only tolerant if it accords with the teaching of a specific religion. Okay? That's to say, to push that kind of definition of Christians shouldn't convert other people is to push a definition of tolerance that only makes sense if that's the teaching of Christianity. But Jesus says, and the Bible says, I am the only way, the truth, and the life, and no one can come to the Father except through me. Which means that Jesus' teaching, the core of his teaching, is that he is the exclusive way back to God. And his core of his teaching is that he is the only true religion. So if a culture is telling us that we can only worship Jesus as long as it doesn't force us to convert other people, and if we're only doing that, then it's just as intolerant as Nebuchadnezzar is. Because it's saying in that perspective that you are standing above the religions of the world. You're standing above the religions of the world and able to judge them yourselves, which in itself is a religious statement. To say Christians shouldn't convert people is itself a religious statement, and you're speaking into Christian doctrine. You're saying my take on ultimate reality is better than yours. But to address the second concern, does this therefore mean that Christianity will ultimately lead to be a totalitarian force? Look at what Nebuchadnezzar says in verse 29. He says, therefore, I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins. Okay. Nebuchadnezzar is wrong there, okay? Nebuchadnezzar is, uh, maybe he admires the God of the Bible, but he doesn't know him because Jesus Christ came in weakness. Jesus Christ came and conquered the powers of darkness and the kingdoms of this world through weakness. He came by suffering and hanging on a Roman cross. He brings his kingdom through peace and love. At the end, on that last day, he will come triumphantly and he will come completely and he will come in victory and he will wipe the kings of the earth from the face of the earth. But now and in his first coming, he comes as a suffering servant, which means that his people, his disciples, you and me, always come in his name. We always come as suffering servants. So if we're ever coming like Nebuchadnezzar's coming, saying, if you don't believe this, then we're going to tear you limb from limb and we're going to take you from your houses, then we don't get it. And that doesn't just apply to this totalitarianism. It applies to the nitty-gritty things of our lives. How do we relate to our neighbor? How do we relate to those in our own homes? If we truly have the message of the gospel, if we truly have who Jesus Christ really is and how he came, then we ourselves will be like him. We ourselves will be suffering servants. We will lay down our lives. We will endear affliction. We will, take, we will turn the other cheek from our neighbor, from our spouse, from our children. And his kingdom will come through us in weakness. What else does this image mean for us, though? I think we can look at this image of Nebuchadnezzar setting up, by the way, 60 cubits is, is like 90 feet, which, you know, the back of your Bibles have this, this, uh, this, this chart of measures 
which is always interesting to me because this is an English translation, so why don't we just say 90 feet, but whatever. Um, instead, we give a footnote, but this is a 90-foot statue, and I think there can be a temptation to think, okay, this is an ancient idea. Uh, well, for one, it wasn't unique to an original reader because this kind of practice happened all over the ancient world. But second, I think that it's helpful for us to realize that setting up these kinds of statues is also a modern kind of idea, this sense of national pride, if you will. In fact, my great-grandmother and great-grandfather went by one when they came into Ellis Island in the 1930s, this statue of liberty. And I'm not saying it's right, I'm not saying it's wrong, I'm just saying it is a symbol of national pride. Or if you've ever been to a baseball game or a football game, I went to, um, I went to Autzen Stadium a couple years ago where it never rains at Autzen Stadium. Um, and the sense of national pride there is so palpable, it's so emotionally engaging, it's, it's, it's almost weird. When, when, when the national anthem is, is sung and the flag that's the size of the football field is there and the F-16s go flying overhead there's t- and there's tears running down the face of the guy next to you, I mean, it's like, whoa, this is intense. There is some intense national pride here. I say that all to say that this sense of national pride, this sense of national identity is not unique to 500 B.C., It's not unique to first century AD, and it's not unique to the 21st century here in the United States. But you know the problem with that, this national pride, this kingdom building, this nation building, inevitably leads to kingdoms of beasts, as I said last week. If you're older than 16 years old in this room, then you were born into the bloodiest century of human history. The 20th century was the bloodiest century in all of human history. 4.3% of all deaths in the 20th century were war and conflict related. Almost 5% of every death in the 20th century was somehow related to a national conflict, a war of some sorts. And that's, that percentage per capita is higher than any other generation as far as we can tell in the history of the world. The bloodiest century. And one of the main perpetrators of this was national pride. One of the main perpetrators of the bloodiest 20th century was national pride. The story of many of the nations was one of getting rid of God by putting themselves in God's place saying that God is dead, as Nietzsche said, the German philosopher. Here's a quote that I found in a commentary. And this quote is by one of Adolf Hitler's right-hand guys, and it's from 1936, and it's an interview that he gave with the London Times in 1936. He says this. He says, One cannot be a good German and at the same time deny God. But an arousal of faith in the eternal German is at the same time an arousal of faith in the eternal God. If we act as true Germans, we act according to the laws of God. And whoever serves Adolf Hitler, the Fuhrer, serves Germany. And whoever serves Germany serves God. 
It's the rise of national pride. We ought not be naive to think that that same sort of sentiment doesn't reside in us as well with God and country here in the United States of America. What's interesting, and I think striking for us to realize, is the response to this national pride, this response from Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Look at verse 16. Everyone has come. I've told you, it's repeated it four or five times, the satraps, the prefects, the governors, etc. Everyone has come to this, uh, this, this, this worship service of sorts, this coronation of sorts, whatever this, whatever this display was supposed to be. And they find out that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they, they didn't go. And it says this, verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O King Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. What's striking is that they didn't run down to the plain of Dura with signs that says God hates idols. They didn't run down to the plain of Dura in protest. In fact, they, didn't even, they just didn't go. They were peacefully objecting to what was going on in the world around them. They weren't down there picketing. They weren't down there protesting. And they didn't even say to Nebuchadnezzar, they said, we just, we just feel no need. We feel no need to answer you in this matter. We're going to look more at this as we close the sermon. But they were embodying what we call a faithful presence. They were living as a distinct people. And it was their lives, it was their lives that became the occasion to question them. It was the way that they'd been living their lives that became the occasion to question them. And it's these Chaldeans, it says a couple of verses earlier, these Chaldeans that, that are, are really trying to be instigators. They're angry at them. They're angry that the Israelites aren't getting on board. They're not getting with the program. And so they accuse them. They accuse them. And they say to Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. Now, I'll close the sermon in a minute, and I'll give us some more principles from that. But I want to talk about something right here in the middle. And that is this, this fiery furnace that Nebuchadnezzar has given to us. And this phrase, this fiery furnace, it brings to the fore the reality of evil and suffering and trial and struggle. Because, as we read this morning in Isaiah 43, that the people of God would pass through fires, they would pass through trials. Babylon itself, later in Isaiah, is called the fire of affliction or the furnace of affliction. That's the way that Babylon is described by the prophets as they're leading up to this time in Babylon. We can see this furnace and we can see these guys that are about to go through one of the most horrific moments of their life. They're about to go through the most significant trial of their entire lives. And see their response. Look at their response in verse 17. If this be so, our God, whom whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. They don't know the outcome. Verse 17 says, hey, we know God's able to do it. And he might do it. Verse 18 says, but if not. And I don't take the but but if not to be if he's able. I take the but if not to be if he will deliver. We know he's able. And we know he can deliver. But if not, but if he doesn't deliver. 
then be it known that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the image that you have set up. They've come to a moment of trial. They've come to one of the most significant moments of their lives. And they say, we don't know what God's going to do. We know that he's able. We know that he's able to deliver us, but we don't know what he's going to do. When we get to these moments in our lives, I think our, our, our challenge is to do one of two things instead of a third thing. Our challenge is that we don't realize that our faith is not trust in the quantity of our belief. Our faith is not in our trust in the quantity of our belief. Not in how often we pray, that we've, re- we've, we've conjured up a religious piety, and, and that's what we're putting our hope and trust in, that because we've done this, because we've put this in, because we've followed God all these years, therefore our trust and our hope is in that. Because if I've done that, if I've put in X, Y, Z, then I know God will deliver me. That's a hope in your own moralistic behavior, though. Or our faith oftentimes is in the quality of our belief. So when circumstances and trials come, and we pray that God would change our circumstances, we pray that God would intervene on our behalf, and he doesn't. We're tempted to think that he doesn't hear us because of the quality of our faith. I didn't pray believing enough. I was double-minded when I fasted for that thing. But still, my friends, in that moment, your faith is in the trust of the quality of your belief. But the true faith is in the object of your belief. True faith is in the object of your faith. And the object of your faith is the God who is strong and able to deliver. Jesus said, Matt read it this morning, in this world you will have trouble. Peter said, beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. And I was meditating on this reality this week and I was thinking there is probably no greater biblical principle than take up your cross and follow me. Take up your cross and follow me. Jesus had to roach, had to roach, no, no he didn't. Jesus had to march down the road of suffering towards the path of glory. He had to march down the road of suffering to the path of glory. And if it's true for him, then it's true for us. You know, there's a great scene where we see this, and it's in Mark chapter 9. And in Mark chapter 9, it's the transfiguration of Jesus on the mount. There he is on top of the mountain, and it says that his robes are radiantly white. He's there with Moses and Elijah. And he's standing, and, he's, and he's, it's, a, it's a glimpse of him being glorified before the disciples' very eyes. And yet, in that moment, he doesn't leave and go to heaven. In that moment, he goes back down the mountain. And when he gets back down the mountain, he's now on a road. And it's a spot in Mark's gospel that's called the hinge point, where he's now marching and he's going towards Jerusalem from this point on. 
And the first person, though, that he meets when he gets to the bottom of the mountain after the transfiguration is this father. And he meets this father who has this son who has these convulsions. He has a a spirit of sorts. He's an epileptic. It's the first person that Jesus meets when he comes down to the bottom of the mountain. And the text says this. Verse 25. It says that when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. And the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said that he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and rose. Before the boy was able to lay there and to rise, he was shaken violently. It says that he was, con- he was convulsed, and it says that it shook him terribly in verse 26. And I think the reason that Mark puts that there is to remind us that the path of Jesus to glory, his path is one of suffering first. And the very first example that he gives us is he gives us a father who says, I believe, but help my unbelief, my, my belief is not in the quantity or the quality of my faith, but my faith is in you, Jesus. You're the object of my faith, and you are sure and strong and steady, and you can deliver. And the second thing we see is that his son must be shaken terribly before he is healed. Edward Schwitzer, commentator, said, The presence of God can produce a storm and a great distress before anything constructive can actually be accomplished. The fiery furnace was necessary for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to experience the all-sufficient God. Whatever my God ordains is right. He is my friend and father. He suffers not to do me harm, though many storms may gather. Now I may know both joy and woe. Someday... I shall see clearly that he hath loved me dearly. Job said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gives, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Paul says, For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. For the sake, then, of Christ, I am content with weakness, insult, hardship, persecutions, calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. It's through weakness that Jesus conquered the powers of darkness. And it's in weakness and your weakness that he truly comes to you. Because you know, my friends, the reality of verse 17 and 18 is that we are weak people. I don't know that I could stand the test in standing in front of of Nebuchadnezzar. I don't know what I would do. But the beauty of this text is that as we go on and as we look in the fiery furnace, we see that there's this fourth figure in the fire with them. And it's not absolutely certain who it is. Is it a, is it a pre-incarnate Christ? Maybe. But we do know at least that it is a messenger sent from God to be with his people in the midst of affliction. And that's the hope that you have this morning, my friends. That in the midst of this exile, in the midst of living in a post-Christian society, where it's becoming increasingly hostile to be a Christian, in this fiery furnace as we know it, God will never leave you or forsake you. He is with you and by your side in every single 
trial. Be it the trials that are big and the trials that are small. His presence is with you to lead you and to guide you. So finally, how do we respond? The response of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego on some, on the, on, in so many ways is so simple. And yet it's so powerful. It's so simple, they just simply resist. They just resist this civic kind of religion. They just resist the temptation to embrace this civic deity. They don't march down to the plain of Dura. But it's this, it's this, it's this knife's edge that we've been talking about. Non-participation doesn't mean withdrawal, as we've seen. These guys have government jobs, okay? These guys are working to make the city the best place that they possibly can. They are fully engaged to see the prosperity of Babylon, but they don't participate in the national pride of Babylon. They're in the world, but not of the world. They're engaged with it in as much as it accords with the Bible. So what does that mean for us? What does it look like as we live in the Portland-Vancouver metro area? How do we seek the good of the city? We care about what the people care about here as much as it's confirmed in the word of God. But we don't embrace the temptation to embrace values and pride that are contrary to the Bible. For example, one of the major concerns in our city right now is over the homeless population. Okay? As many of you know, this last couple of weeks, on September 1st, uh, there was an effort to clean up the Springwater Corridor. There was probably 500 people living along the Springwater Corridor. And the Portland police went down there, and in the first week, they've, they moved about 100 people. And in that first week, there was five 40-yard containers of trash, and the police confiscated 1,800 hypodermic needles. 1,800 hypodermic needles in one week along the Springwater Corridor. That is a massive problem. And it's a massive problem that we, as Christians of the gathering church, are concerned about. Another problem is the refugee problem in this country. There are people that are being relocated from their homes because of terrible civil wars in the Middle East. Terrible acts of terror in the Middle East. And it's a problem that we ought to care about as well. We're living in a, th- a, third, a third national issue right now. We're living in a time where there is great tension between police and the African-American community. Great tension between white police officers and the African-American community. It's a concern that we also ought to be concerned about and care about. And alongside that, alongside this tension that's happening, is there's, ha- there's this reverse effect that's happening uh, in the inner cities of America. Chicago, just this month, has released statistics that murders in inner-city Chicago are 50% higher this year, right now, than they were just a year ago. There's 50% more murders in inner-city Chicago than there were just a year ago. Over the 4th of July in Chicago, there were 63 shootings. 63 shootings in one weekend in Chicago. It's because it has to deal with this whole police officer African-American community issue. Because police officers are now withdrawing from the very communities that they were sent to protect out of fear of repercussion and backlash. It's a problem that needs to be dealt with. 
It's a problem that needs to be addressed. And in as much as that accords with the morality and the message of the Bible, we as Christians ought to be concerned about it. But there's another message of our culture that's happening right now. And that is this desire of national pride and it is this desire of religious pluralism. And it stems and it, and it, and it bleeds itself into the uh, Obergefell v. Hodges decision where gay marriage was made legal in June of 2015. And there is a continued assault on religious liberty. And this continued assault on religious liberty that won't stop and will continue is an assault that stems from a Obergefell. And it's not just that they want Christians to be tolerant of their neighbors who are gay. Because that's absolutely God's command and God's call to us, to be tolerant of those that live around us. But they want Christians, the liberal agenda is for Christians to say that it's right. And they're doing everything in their power, legally or otherwise, to make religious liberty basically vanish. And they want us Christians to say, as believers of the Bible, that gay marriage is right. And that's a place where we have to stand. So there's aspects of our culture that we can totally get behind, we can affirm, we can say, yes, these are issues that God himself is concerned about the poor, and there are issues that we can say, we can't. We can't. And for that, my friends, for that, there will come times when we'll be like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego standing before Nebuchadnezzar. It means that living in this kind of society, it means that sometimes we need to remind the kings of the earth, it means that sometimes we need to remind the president, the governors, the mayors, that they aren't king and they aren't God. Because Jesus Christ is the true and rightful king of the world. Amen. Okay. I'm going to close with this. Look at verse 28. 29. Therefore I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins. For there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Nebuchadnezzar saw something that was striking to him. He said that was not able to rescue in this way. And the this way always means that rescue comes through the trial. That the way out of the trial is through the trial. The way out of the furnace is through the furnace. Nebuchadnezzar was amazed that God saved in this way. He could, have, he could have removed the trial before it even came. He could, have, he could have prevented them from having to go into the furnace altogether. But Nebuchadnezzar was struck with the fact that God saves through trial. God saves through weakness. And my friends, that is the message of the Bible. That is the message if it has to deal with our civic duty and our standing in Portland and Vancouver and it has to do with how we live our lives on a day-to-day, ordinary level. That the way through the circumstances that you're finding yourselves in, the way through the trial that you're in, is through weakness. It's the way that Jesus Christ conquered the world, and it's the way, my friends, that you yourselves will find victory through weakness. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word.
We are grateful, God, that you've not left us, that you've given us hope, Lord, that um, just like you were with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, in that godless culture, you are with us. And just like you were with them in their own personal affliction, you are with us, God. We are grateful, Lord. We ask, God, that we would be a faithful people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we come to the table this morning, will we proclaim that Jesus Christ has conquered the evil and idolatrous kingdoms of men through the blood of his cross. We are proclaiming that his life, death, and resurrection conquered the evil kingdom in our own hearts, our own desires to be God, our own desires to make a name for ourselves. It's when we were sinners and we were far from him that he conquered our wickedness and poured out his gracious love and mercy into our hearts. And so we come row by row up to the table to proclaim his death resurrection until he comes again. If you're a Christian and you're visiting us from another church and you've been baptized, uh, you're welcome to partake of the elements with us. You can take them back to your seat and one of the elders will lead us in communion this morning.